Chapter Three of Rousseau and Education According to Nature by Thomas Davidson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Rousseau's Life, Two Productive Period, seventeen forty one to seventeen seventy eight. I knew that all my talent came from a certain warmth of soul regarding the subjects I had to treat, and that it was only the love of the great, the true, and the good that could animate my genius i have never been able to write except from passion rousseau confessions book ten rousseau's early education failing to discipline his instincts and leaving him in a state of animal spontaneity had produced the man whom we have seen toward his thirtieth year thanks partly to poor health partly to rather extensive reading he began, as we have seen, to realize his condition and to have dim glimpses, still in a sensuous way indeed, of a higher. His sated sensuality made him think of hell, while the vague thrill of delight which he felt in the presence of sublime nature was objectified into a god. Footnote. See Confessions, Part 1, Book 6. It is perhaps worth noting that this is exactly the god of Faust at the time when he is trying to ruin Gretchen. Feeling is all, he says, at the close of a gush of immoral sentimentality. The result proves the moral value of such a god. Rousseau sat for much in the portrait of Faust. In the footnote. At all events, he began to make good resolutions, which is the first step in moral life, and he was now about to enter a new school, very conducive to such life, the school of experience, which, as Jean-Paul says, is an excellent schoolmistress, though the fees are rather high. In turning his face to Paris, Rousseau meant to win distinction and fortune as a musician. He had made considerable progress in musical knowledge and even aspired to be a composer. The idea of literary authorship had hardly yet dawned upon him. On his way, he stopped at Lyon, where he obtained several letters of introduction and had a momentary but violent love spasm, which, however, did not detain him. I reached Paris, he says, in the autumn of 1741, with fifteen louis of ready money in my pocket, my comedy Narcisse, and my musical project as my sole resources. Having, therefore, no time to lose, I made haste to take advantage of my letters of introduction. He was well received. His musical project, which was nothing less than a new system of musical notation, was presented to the Academy of Sciences, but failed to meet with the recognition he had expected. His Narcisse, though praised by Fontenelle and Diderot, with whom, among other notabilities, he had become intimate, was not then brought on the stage. He consequently relapsed, with a kind of desperate delight, into his habitual indolence, and would soon have been reduced to abject poverty, had not a wise Jesuit father advised him to try his fortune with the ladies. He did so, and notwithstanding his incurable awkwardness and rusticity of manner, and his fatal habit of making effusive love to every woman he met, 
no matter what her rank or age he was able through one of his patronesses madame de broglie to obtain a situation as secretary to a recently appointed ambassador to venice the comte du montagu in this position which brought him in contact with diplomatic and political life in a word with the great world for the first time he seems to have conducted himself with energy and firmness though not always with prudence and he retained it for eighteen months he finally quarrelled with the ambassador who was an incompetent negligent coxcomb and returned to france without his salary for a long time all his endeavours to obtain this were in vain a fact which made a deep impression on him the injustice and uselessness he says of my complaints left in my soul a germ of indignation against our stupid civil institutions in which the true good of the public and real justice are always sacrificed to some indefinable apparent order in reality destructive of all order and merely adding the sanction of public authority to the oppression of the weak and the iniquity of the strong and this was not the only profound impression made on him by his sojourn in venice in his official life he learnt the hollowness and corruption of diplomacy and officialism in his private life in which he saw much of the seamy side of venice he came to close quarters with forms of depravity that disgusted even his not over-healthy sensuality and touched his better nature he returned from the most immoral of cities a somewhat sobered and reflective man footnote a letter which he wrote to a lady who received him badly on his return because he had dared to quarrel with an ambassador reveals his state of mind at this time here are some extracts i'm sorry madam i've made a mistake i thought you just i ought to have remembered that you are noble i ought to have felt that it is unbecoming in me a plebeian to make claims against a gentleman have i ancestors titles he is equity without parchment equity if he the ambassador has no dignity of soul it is because his nobility enables him to be without it if he is hand in glove with all that is filthiest in the most immoral of cities if he is the chum of pickpockets if he is one himself it is because his ancestors had honour instead of him End of footnote. and what is more with a little sense of his own personal dignity as a man on his return to paris rousseau resumed his bohemian life for a short time he lived with a much admired spanish friend but on his departure desiring to enjoy entire independence he moved to a little inn near the luxembourg meaning to resume his musical studies and composition his landlady was a woman of the coarsest sort and most of the guests irish or gascon were like her rousseau being the only decent person among them they were waited upon by a poor hard-working girl named therese le vasseur from orleans who soon became the butt of all the coarse ribaldry of the house rousseau alone took her part a sympathy sprang up between them which soon passed into what he called love and in a few days the ex-secretary of the venetian embassy wishing to find a successor to his mamma as he says made the poor creature his wife in all but the name he promised never to abandon her and never to marry her and he kept his word to his dying day from seventeen forty four to seventeen seventy eight 
there is no accounting for tastes and there is no doubt that rousseau found in his therese who had few personal charms and who could never tell the time on a clock face remember the order of the months or give change for a franc what was permanently congenial to his sensuous indolent nature what he wanted was not stimulation or intellectual companionship but steady unexacting affection and the thousand little soothing attentions that are quite compatible with gross stupidity these he found and his loyalty to her through all changes of fortune amid good and evil repute is perhaps the noblest trait in his whole life what mattered it to him that other persons saw in her only coarseness and greed he was content in the presence of those we love he says feeling nourishes the intelligence as well as the heart and there is no need to go elsewhere in quest of ideas i lived with my therese as agreeably as with the finest genius in the world i saw that she loved me sincerely and this redoubled my tenderness this intimacy took the place of everything for me the future did not touch me or touch me only as the present prolonged i desired only to ensure its duration this attachment rendered all other sorts of dissipation superfluous and insipid i went out only to visit therese her home became almost mine rousseau's relation to therese did one thing at least for him it steadied him and gave him peace to work so he toiled away at musical composition and tried through his friends to bring his work before the public but without success discouraged at last and having to provide not only for himself but also for therese and her whole family he attached himself in a somewhat nondescript capacity to certain wealthy patrons who gave him a small salary with these he passed the autumn of seventeen forty seven at the castle of chanonceau on the cher in great luxury but when he returned a great surprise awaited him his therese was about to give birth to a child an event for which he was not at all prepared and here the worst side of his character his utter want of any sense of moral responsibility and natural affection came to the surface as soon as the child was born it was sent despite the heart-broken remonstrances of the mother to the foundling hospital and was never again seen or recognized by its parents we may anticipate somewhat by adding that four other children born to them later all shared the same fate with all his gushing sentimentality and sensuous sympathy rousseau recoiled from the tenderest sweetest and most sacred of all human duties the nurture and training of his own offspring speaking of the exposure of his second child he says not a bit more reflection on my part not a bit more approval on the part of the mother she groaned and obeyed and this was the man who could not see her gibed by the irish and gascon abbe about this time rousseau became acquainted with madame de pinay and mademoiselle de bellegarde afterwards comtesse du Deteau, both of whom were destined to play important parts in his life now also mainly through his connection with the abbe condillac and diderot he began to think of literary composition and planned a periodical to be called le persifleur which luckily never saw the light he did however write the article on music for the encyclopedie which diderot and d'alembert were at that time preparing to issue the progress of this work was interrupted by the arrest and imprisonment of the former on account of his letter on the blind 
confined at first in the donjon at vincent diderot was afterwards on his parole allowed the liberty of the castle and park and here his wife and friends visited him among the most enthusiastic of the latter was rousseau who went every other day it was on one of these visits that an event occurred which affected his whole subsequent career by throwing him into the path on which he gained both influence and fame it must be described in his own words the summer of seventeen forty nine was one of excessive heat it is two leagues from paris to vincent unable to pay for a cab i started at two o'clock in the afternoon and walked when i was alone and i walked quick to arrive the sooner to moderate my pace i resolved to carry some books with me one day i took the mercure de france and as i walked along reading it my eye fell on this question proposed by the academy of dijon as the subject of the following year's prize essay has the progress of the arts and sciences contributed to corrupt or to purify morals on reading this i instantly saw a new universe and became a new man if ever there was anything like a sudden inspiration it was the movement that took place in me on that occasion instantly i felt my mind dazzled by a thousand lights crowds of brilliant ideas presented themselves all at once with a force and a confusion which threw me into an in an inexpressible tumult i became as dizzy as if i had been intoxicated i was seized with a violent palpitation which made my bosom heave no longer able to breathe while i walked i threw myself down under one of the trees of the avenue and there remained for half an hour in such a state of agitation that when i got up i observed that the whole front of my vest was wet with my tears though i was not aware that i had shed any if i could have written down a fourth part of what i felt and saw under that tree with what clearness would i have exposed all the contradictions of our social system with what force would i have laid bare all the abuses of our institutions with what simplicity would i have proved that man is naturally good and that it is solely through institutions that men become wicked on arriving at vincent i was in a state of agitation bordering on delirium diderot perceived this i told him the cause he encouraged me to give vent to my ideas and compete for the prize i did so and from that moment i was lost all the rest of my life and misfortunes were the inevitable result of this moment of bewilderment my feelings rose with utterly inconceivable rapidity to the height of my ideas all my petty passions were stifled by enthusiasm for truth freedom virtue and what is yet more astonishing this effervescence kept up in my heart for over four or five years to a degree of which i have never known it to occur in the heart of any other man such is rousseau's account of his conversion to literature and to the advocacy of truth right and liberty though we need not accept its details as literal facts we may fairly say that this conversion was due not to calm conviction based upon long and profound reflection but simply to the direction of his ardent and diffusive imagination upon a new and attractive series of arcadian pictures of quiet bliss contrasted with the noisy and distressing scenes in which he found himself his essay won the dijon academy's prize and this encouraged him to continue writing meantime he had hired a small apartment furnished it and taken therese and her parents to live with him here he spent the next seven years in a way which must be described in his own words the heart of my therese was that of an angel our attachment increased with our intimacy and we felt more and more every day how truly we were made for each other if our pleasures could be described they would excite a laugh 
by their simplicity our private walks outside the city where i munificently spent eight or ten cents at some alehouse our little suppers by my window-sill where we sat face to face on two chairs placed on a trunk which filled the embrasure so placed with the window as our table we breathed the air we could see the neighbourhood in the passers-by and though on the fourth floor looked down into the street while we ate who shall describe who shall feel the delights of those meals consisting of nothing more than a quartern loaf of bread a few cherries a piece of cheese and half a pint of wine which we drank between us friendship confidence intimacy sweetness of soul how delicious your relishes are sometimes we remained there till midnight without being aware of it or noting the time until the old mamma called our attention to it in this description we find the old vagabond rousseau only transferred to a city garret and at the same time that ideal of a quiet aimless unenterprising dalliant life which underlies all his writings in paris rousseau notwithstanding his mode of life and his ebullient intractable disposition made many friends both in the fashionable and in the literary worlds and was recognized as a rising man both in music and in literature his opera le devin du village was played with great success before the king at versailles and would have earned him a pension had he played his cards well his narcisse likewise was performed his essay on the moral effect of the arts and sciences had identified him with certain rather paradoxical principles and made him an object of universal curiosity so that he now resolved to live up to these even in externals he gave up a public office which brought him a good salary and took to earning his living by copying music another change must be described in his own words i began my reform with my dress i left off gold facings and white stockings i put on a round wig i laid aside my sword i sold my watch saying to myself with incredible delight thank heaven i shall no longer need to know what the time is in doing this rousseau wished to show that he once for all identified himself with the common people with whom indeed his chief sympathies were he was too immediate and capricious ever to school himself into the manners of polite society or to find satisfaction in its hollow formalities and he would have been wise had he avoided it altogether as he did not in seventeen fifty three he wrote his second discourse on the question what is the origin of inequality among men and is it authorized by the natural law which though failing to win the dijon prize added to his reputation and carried his thoughts further on in the direction in which they had for some time been moving that of democracy in spite of all these successes rousseau got weary of the close atmosphere of paris the obtrusive curiosity of visitors and the calls of social life all the more that he had for some time been suffering from a painful malady accordingly in seventeen fifty four he paid a visit in company with therese to his native city on his way he went to see his mamma whom he found a poverty-stricken wreck then he says was the moment to pay off my debts i ought to have left all and followed her clinging to her till her last hour and sharing whatever it might be her fate i did nothing i groaned over her and did not follow her at geneva he met with an enthusiastic reception returned after twenty-six years of apostasy to protestantism and was restored to his rights as a citizen he even made up his mind to settle there for the rest of his life and returned to paris with the intention of preparing for so doing finding however that voltaire whose unfriendly influence he dreaded had settled near geneva and that the introduction to his second discourse in which he had spoken of the genevese 
constitution had given offence to his countrymen he changed his mind and having just then received from his friend madame d'epinay the offer of a home in the charming hermitage near montmorency he accepted and in the spring of seventeen fifty six removed thither with therese and her mother the father over eighty years of age was packed off to the poorhouse where he died almost immediately to the great grief of therese amid the delights of his new residence rousseau was for a while in the most ecstatic condition he had money enough to live on for some time a fair prospect of paying work devoted friends self-set tasks in which he delighted and natural surroundings in which he could thrill and gush to his heart's content but this was too much he did indeed continue to copy music but his other tasks were soon mostly abandoned or forgotten while he gave himself up to his natural indolence and dreaming withdrawing almost completely from society he buried himself in the woods and with his morbid and lurid imagination devoted himself to the creation of a mohammedan paradise of sensual delights in which he reveled day and night from this time on he never ceased to suffer from what may be called imaginative insanity the effects of this showed themselves at the first touch with reality having been visited by the comtesse du Ditteux, the sister-in-law of his patroness he at once enveloped her in all the products of his diseased imagination and so conceived for her a frantic passion whose depth he measured by the nervous derangement it caused in him and the gush of passionate bombast it brought upon his lips footnote he maintained ever afterwards that she was the only real love of his life that he had never completely loved even his mamma or his therese at all such is the power of a fixed idea End of footnote. madame dudoteau however having not only a husband but a lover besides while allowing him to gush did not respond as he desired and the only result of his folly was that he embroiled himself with madame de Pernay and many of his other friends the former a woman of very loose life was jealous of her sister-in-law while the latter seeing the effect of solitude upon him tried to induce him to return to paris or to separate from therese who with her rapacious deceitful mother was bringing him to poverty and becoming more and more a burden to him for both women they undertook to provide rousseau resenting all interference with his caprices they were nothing more suddenly left the hermitage and accused his friends of having formed a conspiracy for which he could never assign any motive to ruin him one can excuse him only by saying that he was emotionally insane in the middle of december he moved with therese to a rented cottage at montmorency having sent the mother about her business feeling himself here dependent on no one and not being in very opulent circumstances he began to work and the next four years were the most productive of his whole life they produced the new Eloise, the social contract and emile the first which had been begun at the hermitage under the influence of his passion for madame de du de Teau, was finished in seventeen fifty nine and published two years later the social contract meant to be part of a larger work political institutions came out in seventeen sixty two only a few weeks before emile edmond morency rousseau made the acquaintance of the duke of luxembourg marshal of france and his wife who introduced him into their very aristocratic circle made him acquainted with great people and in every way treated him with the utmost kindness and consideration so that their society had a season of comparative rest and comfort he read the whole of the new eloise and emile to the duchess in bed and in consequence became a great favourite with her she even undertook to see to the printing and publication of emile and made the contracts thus rousseau began to feel that after his stormy past there might be in store for him a peaceful old age with a competency honour and friends but this was not to be no sooner had emile appeared than it roused a storm 
whose extent and fury it is at first sight difficult to understand within a month the parliament condemned the book ordering it to be burnt and its obnoxious author arrested to this result there is no doubt that persons who had once been his friends contributed the truth is rousseau by his book had placed himself in opposition to two powerful and well-defined parties one the orthodox religious party which included the court to the philosophic or rationalistic party at whose head stood voltaire and the encyclopedists diderot d'alembert grimm etc the latter was the prime mover in the storm voltaire and his followers had for many years been labouring with might and main to discredit and destroy all religion all belief in the supernatural and were flattering themselves that they would succeed in replacing it by what they call reason now came rousseau whom they had in vain tried to add to their ranks and not only reinstated religion and religious belief but did so with a power and a brilliancy of literary style that threatened not only to defeat their purpose but even to cast themselves and their works into the shade this of course was not to be tamely borne voltaire especially who hated rousseau and whose vanity shrank from no meanness trickery or deceit moved heaven and earth to crush him and he did this so adroitly that his victim was never able to trace to its source the persecution which remorselessly dogged him footnote the infamous libel which rousseau so unjustly attributed to the swiss pastor verne was from the hand of voltaire End of footnote. but if the party of voltaire started the persecution the orthodox party was but too ready to carry it on the theology and religion expounded and advocated in emile especially in the savoyard vicar's confession of faith not only set at open defiance all the dogmas of the church but were well calculated by their simplicity and sweet sentimentality to become widely popular and undermine the church's influence under these circumstances we need not be surprised to find that the two mutually hostile parties combined to procure the condemnation of rousseau and his book we have seen that the duchess of luxembourg had made the arrangements for the printing of emile it was through her he learnt that his arrest was about to be decreed she had received a letter to that effect from the prince de conti a friend of rousseau's and so great was her agitation not only on account of the latter but also on her own that she roused him from sleep and called him to her bedside at two o'clock in the morning of june ninth seventeen sixty two it was intimated that if he attempted to escape no effort would be made to detain him he accordingly determined upon this course one chief motive being his unwillingness to compromise the duchess and her family several places of refuge were suggested to him but he finally chose the nearest switzerland and made all possible haste to reach it on the way he composed three cantos of a poem the levite of ephraim on reaching everdun he stopped for a few days with a friend considering what he should do next where he should settle he would gladly have gone to geneva but found it closed against him there too his book had been burnt and a decree issued against him these two decrees he says were the signal for a shriek of malediction against me from one end of europe to the other a shriek of unexampled fury all the papers journals pamphlets told the most awful toxin despairing of finding a refuge in switzerland he turned to the canton of neuchatel which at that time formed part of the dominions of frederick the great and was governed by marshal keith an exiled scottish jacobite of the noblest character though he had invaded against frederick rousseau with his usual frankness wrote to him telling him he was in his power and asking for an asylum the prussian king not only granted him this but directed marshal keith 
to supply his needs and even build him a house if he so desired. Rousseau declined his gifts but thought better of him ever afterwards. Marshal Keith proved to be the best friend he ever had. Rousseau settled at Motier at the foot of Mount Jura and remained there for over three years, having sent for Therese his books and papers. Though he frittered away his time in childish pursuits, writing almost nothing, things went well enough till the departure of Marshal Keith, when the people of the village, stirred up by narrow-minded pastors and prejudiced by the Armenian costume which, on account of a troublesome malady he had adopted, began to threaten him with violence. This finally went so far that he was obliged to leave the place and betake himself to the island of St. Peter, in the lake of Bien, in the territory of Bern. Here he had reason to think that he would be unmolested, and sending for Therese gave himself up to a life similar to that which he had for some time led at the Charmettes and later at the Hermitage. He reveled in nature, botanized and sentimentalized from morning till night, and was in an ecstasy of bliss. His description of his life here is one of the most charming Arcadian idols in existence. At the end of six weeks, however, his persecutors found him out, and he received a peremptory order to leave the island and the territory of Bern within twenty-four hours, on pain of arrest and forcible expulsion. Stupefied and almost heartbroken, he begged the authorities to imprison him in the island for the rest of his life. He would then be safe, and he desired nothing better. But all in vain, he left the island in the end of October 1765, not knowing whither to turn his steps, he thought of Corsica, Berlin, where he would have had the protection of Marshal Keith, of England, which had been strongly recommended to him by certain of his patronesses, and where he hoped to enjoy the friendship of David Hume. He finally decided for the last of the three. Footnote. Rousseau's confessions break off at this point. The projected third volume was never written. For what follows, we have to depend on his reverie correspondence etc end of footnote the life of rousseau from this point on having no effect upon his chief works may be sketched rapidly we shall try to show merely how his undisciplined temperament and the theories he based on it led to their natural results some of these had already manifested themselves a diseased sensuous imagination suspicion willlessness querulousness gloom but others followed on his way to England, Rousseau went to Paris to join Hume. Here, instead of being molested, he was lionized. Voltaire and everybody are quite eclipsed by him, said Hume. In spite of this, Rousseau, who sincerely disliked publicity, was eager to proceed, and early in January 1766, he crossed over to England with his new friend. In London, he received the utmost attention, was visited by the most distinguished persons, and was offered a pension by the king. About all this, however, he cared little, and was anxious only to find a quiet retreat. Several places were thought of, but he finally settled upon Wooten in Derbyshire. Here he was offered the use of a spacious house by a wealthy and generous Mr. Davenport, but insisted upon paying rent for it. Removing to it in March, and being soon joined by Therese, he resumed his life with nature and his botany, set to work upon his confessions, which he had long projected, and thought he was going to be happy. Soon, however, the rudeness of the climate, his ignorance of English, the difficulties caused by Therese, the change of feeling on the part of the English public, as evidenced by the press, and Hume's lack of continual satisfactory responsiveness to his ardent feelings, brought to the surface the morbid suspicion that lurked in his nature. 
he accused hume of gross treachery and of having conspired with voltaire and d'alembert to ruin him footnote among the charges which he brought against hume was that of having written a letter pretending to come from frederick the great which brought great ridicule upon him the closing words of this letter whose real author was the coxcomb horace walpole may be quoted as containing some truth if you will persist in harrowing your soul to find new misfortunes choose those which you prefer i am a king and can procure you any sort you like and i will do what you need not expect from your enemies i will cease to persecute you when you cease taking pride in being persecuted End of footnote. hume it is needless to say was guiltless of treachery but his cold passionless nature rendered him incapable of understanding the man he had undertaken to befriend and with whose known infirmities he ought to have borne while his vanity resented anything that seemed to call his parasitic impeccability in question he accordingly printed a defence of himself thus dragging before the public what was essentially a private matter the public took it up and the world was deluged with pamphlets on both sides rousseau who cared nothing for public opinion preserved a dignified silence nevertheless he became more and more unhappy and after sojourning a year at wooten he suddenly disappeared from it leaving behind him therese and his effects he was found first in lincolnshire and afterwards at dover whence toward the end of may seventeen sixty seven he crossed over to calais a wretched man full of fears disordered in body and in mind for the next three years he wandered about from place to place sometimes alone sometimes the guest of generous patrons among whom were the marquis de mirabeau and the prince de conti in the chateau of the latter at Tri near guizor he remained a whole year under the assumed name of renaud and here he wrote the second part of his confessions having got into difficulties through therese whose character became daily more brutal he suddenly left Tri, meaning to go to chambery and visit old scenes footnote his mamma was no longer living she had died in destitution and wretchedness in seventeen sixty two while he was at motier botanizing and trifling End of footnote but he never reached that place he passed some time at grenoble went thence to bourgoin where he spent over half a year and informally married therese thinking thereby to regain her lost affection and thence to monquin where he passed some fifteen months tired at last of wandering and feeling that he might with safety return to paris he repaired thither in july seventeen seventy and settled down to his old life which he had abandoned fourteen years before when he went to occupy the hermitage here he passed eight years living in a very simple way on a meagre income which he eked out by copying music he still continued however to botanize to write and to compose music his dialogues his reverie and some minor works belong to this period he was still visited by the great the fashionable the wise and the curious but he was not happy therese was daily becoming more trying he suffered a good deal of bodily pain his mind was morbid haunted by phantoms from the past fears for the present and gloomy forebodings for the future he had lost many of his friends and his independence which had almost become a disease forbade him to accept aid from those whom he still retained at last however by the advice of his physician he was induced to accept the invitation of m Girardin to go and live at his estate of armanon Villa, some twenty miles from paris he went there on the twenty first of may seventeen seventy eight and was soon followed by therese country life seemed to bring back some of his old enthusiasm and he was revolving in his head projects for the future among them the continuation of emile 
when on the second of july he was suddenly taken ill suffering acute pains on the following day he got up and was preparing to go out when he was seized with violent shivering and headache while trying to swallow some medicine he fell forward on the ground and almost instantly expired at the age of sixty-six years he was buried the same day in the island of the poplars in the lake of armononville and there his ashes rested till the triumph of the revolution which he had done so much to bring about footnote the report that he committed suicide seems utterly destitute of foundation since this was written an examination of his skull has placed this beyond doubt in the footnote on the eleventh of october seventeen ninety three they were removed amid a tumult of enthusiasm to paris and placed in the pantheon over whose portal are inscribed the words oh grands hommes la patrie reconnaissant this sketch of rousseau's life imperfect as it is will enable us to form a conception and an estimate of his character and ideals which underlie his social and educational theories we shall not greatly err if we say that the foundation of rousseau's character was spontaneity that his whole life was an endeavour to give free and unconstrained expression to this and that his works were so many efforts to champion it as the ideal of life and to show how it might be preserved free from constraint and corruption in rousseau himself this spontaneity naturally very rich and strong was fostered by an education which leaving him at liberty to follow his momentary caprices fired his imagination and made it ungovernable so that he early became utterly incapable of submitting to any restraint regulation continuous occupation or duty however sacred he lived in and for the present moment seeking to draw from it the greatest amount of enjoyment tranquil or ecstatic as his mood happened to demand without any thought of past future or the claims of others he was too immediate to cherish either love or hatred for absent things or persons he was without malignity because malignity causes discomfort he loved for the pleasure love gave him and when that ceased love ceased he was equally a stranger to revenge and gratitude he could abandon his best friend and then weep torrents of delicious tears over his or her forlorn condition he could gush over his friends as long as they were willing merely to gush back but when they showed any signs of coldness or tried to call him back to a sense of duty he was ready to accuse them of the grossest ingratitude or blackest treachery knowing absolutely nothing of moral discipline and having learnt none of those moral principles which render permanent and healthy social relations possible he easily got disgusted with society and was always ready to withdraw to solitude which he could people with beings endowed with prodigal emotion duly responsive to his own for the same reason while he exulted in virtue when virtue was picturesque and pleasant he was ready to give way to the basest of vices if he could thereby obtain pleasure or avoid pain he could never prevail upon himself to do anything that was disagreeable no matter what law of duty imposed it upon him he could wax eloquent on the duties of parents and melt into tears at the sight of innocent children yet he sent his own offspring to the foundling asylum such are some of the fruits of spontaneity but perhaps the most astonishing thing about rousseau is that he went through life not only without learning the meaning of duty but firmly believing that the life of pure spontaneity and caprice which he led was the ideal life and that he himself was the best of men this indeed he openly maintains so far indeed was he from being ashamed of his undisciplined spontaneity that he wrote his confessions to prove that the spontaneous man is the best of men we need not be surprised then to find that all his works are so many pleas for spontaneity so many attempts to show all the evils which afflict humanity to be due to restraints placed upon spontaneity or attempts to discipline it 
that they are so many schemes for making humanity blessed by the removal of these restraints indeed it is hardly an exaggeration to say that the whole aim of rousseau's literary activity is to show how men may be made happy and contented without being obliged to become moral but what rousseau sought to prove by eloquent words by insidious appeals to man's natural craving for happiness on easy terms he disproved by his own character his actions and the sad results of both his character with his subtrusive independence due to absence of all acknowledgment of moral ties is spongy unmanly and repellent we might pity him if he did not pity himself so much but we can in no case admire or love him his actions are merely so many efforts to obtain self-satisfaction and that too of a purely sensuous not to say sensual sort though often imprudent he is never heroic though sentimentally or picturesquely kind he is never generous or high-minded if he submits to wrong he does so more from sloth than from magnanimity the results of his character and actions of which his theories are but the generalized expression and defence are a sufficient warning against such character actions and theories these results were querulousness misery and insanity unillumined by one ray conscious heroism or moral worth the man who had no other interest in life than the satisfaction of his own senses and emotions found life meaningless when satiety abuse and age had blunted these and when despite all unnatural stimulation from a diseased imagination they became sources of pain instead of sources of pleasure nothing was left for him but spontaneous reactions in the form of querulousness self-pity insanity a sadder old age than rousseau's is not often recorded as the above estimate of rousseau's character may seem harsh and unsympathetic it ought to be added that it is based entirely upon his own account of himself in order to show this it may be well to transcribe here a few passages from the four letters which he wrote to m de malazare in january seventeen sixty two in his best days shortly before the publication of the social contract in emile my heart cares too much for other attachments to care so much for public opinion i am too fond of my pleasure and my independence to be as much the slave of vanity as they suppose a man for whom fortune and the hope of a brilliant future never outrate a rendezvous or a pleasant supper is not likely to sacrifice his honour to the desire of being talked about i was long mistaken as to the cause of my invincible disgust with human society what then is this cause it is simply this indomitable spirit of liberty which nothing has been able to overcome and before which fortune honours reputation even are as nothing certain it is that this spirit of liberty is due less to pride than to indolence but this indolence is incredible everything scares it the smallest duties of civil life are insupportable to it a word to speak a letter to write a visit to pay as soon as they have to be done are tortures to me this is why while ordinary intercourse with men is odious to me friendship is so dear because there is no duty about it you follow your heart and all is done this also is why i have always dreaded kindnesses for every kindness demands gratitude and i feel my heart ungrateful simply because gratitude is a duty in a word the kind of happiness i want consists not so much in doing what i wish as in not doing what i don't wish active life has no temptations for me i had a thousand times rather do nothing than do anything against my will i have a hundred times thought that i should not have been unhappy in the bastille having merely to stay there an indolent soul recoiling from all responsibilities and an ardent bilious temperament easily affected and excessively sensitive to all that affects it 
are two things which seem unlikely to meet in the same character yet contrary though they may be they form the basis of mine my soul alienated from itself belongs wholly to my body the distorted condition of my poor machine holds it every day more captive until the time when the two shall part company altogether my woes are the work of nature my happiness is my own work say what you will i have been well behaved because i have been as happy as my nature allowed me to be i have not looked for my happiness in the far distance but in myself and there i have found it when my sufferings make me sadly measure the length of the nights what period of my life do you suppose i recall most frequently and with most pleasure in my dreams it is the period of my retreat my solitary walks the swift but delicious days i have passed all by myself with my good simple housekeeper my beloved dog my old cat the birds of the field and the deer of the forest the whole of nature and its inconceivable author when rising with the sun in order to see him rise i saw the approach of a fine day my first wish was that neither letters nor visits would come to spoil its charm after giving up the forenoon to different chores all of which i did with pleasure because i might have put them off till another time i hastened to dine in order to escape intruders and secure a longer afternoon by one o'clock even in the hottest days i set out when once i had turned a certain corner with what palpitation of heart with what flashes of joy i began to breathe feeling myself safe and saying here i am my own master for the rest of the day then i went along more quietly to find some wilderness where nothing showing the hand of man bore witness to servitude or mastership some retreat into which i could suppose i had been the first to penetrate and where no third intruder could come between nature and me it was there that she seemed to display an ever new splendour before me my imagination did not long leave unpeopled the land thus adorned i soon peopled it with beings according to my own heart and driving far away opinion prejudice and all factitious passions i brought into the retreats of nature men worthy to inhabit them i formed them into a delightful society of which i did not feel myself unworthy to be a member i made a golden age to please myself in filling these beautiful days with all those scenes in my life which had left behind pleasant recollections and with all those which my heart could still desire i melted into tears over the true pleasures of humanity pleasures which are so delicious and so pure and henceforth so far from men oh if in these moments my dreams were broken by any idea of paris of my time of my little literary aureole with what disdain did i at once send it flying in order to give myself up without distraction to the exquisite feelings which fill my soul nevertheless in the midst of all this i confess the unreality of my chimeras sometimes suddenly saddened me if my dreams had all turned into realities they would not have satisfied me i should still have imagined dreamed desired i found in myself an inexplicable void which nothing could fill a certain rising of the heart toward another sort of enjoyment of which i had no idea but yet of which i felt the need i will not hide from you that notwithstanding my consciousness of my vices i owe myself in high esteem such was the man who undertook to be the educator of his kind End of chapter three